The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language, but this episode is going to be a podcast about Looney Tunes. Yes, Twitter sometimes <laughs> twits me that what I really want to do is a podcast about Broadway. But to tell you the truth, in an alternate universe, I do a podcast where I did one Looney Tune each week and just spilled, basically. Slate, that's not a hint. I know that we would get about seven downloads a week and my sabbatical is almost over one show is enough. But Looney Tunes are one of my favorite things, as you've probably noticed if you're regular listeners. And it's them that gave me the old songs. It wasn't Broadway at first. I was not raised with show tunes. I only discovered that in college. But when I was a kid, I used to ask my parents, they were both incredible song encyclopedias, what the songs were in the Looney Tunes. And I don't mean Kill the Wabbit. I mean the ones in the background. I'd say like, what's that song they always play when somebody's eating? What's that song they always play when somebody's having a lucky day or, you know, wins a game? And, you know, especially my father would tell me when I was about 13, I started running down to the Philadelphia Free Library and I would Xerox the sheet music of these songs and I'd start banging it out the best I could on the piano and a deeply weird individual was born. In any case, a few shows ago, I I gave up and I openly devoted a whole episode to Broadway and nobody seemed to mind well. Because last week, my older daughter, we were watching one of my favorites that she's come to like, and she actually asked me, this was unbidden. I was showing her and she said, what's that song they keep playing there? I like it. And I thought, oh my God, she's got the gene. And I decided, you know, I'm going to do Looney Tunes for the next Lexicon Valley. Because, and this is really true, I've always thought in those little seven minute packages, there's not only a lot of music, there's a lot of linguistics in it too. I've always thought so. And so, as always, I just want to share. Let's start here. Somebody is talking about a wonderful leg of lamb they had, and listen to how he says it. That was really an awfully good leg of lamb. Most of you will know that that is the famous Elmer Fudd. And what was that with the W? You know, why is it a wag of lamb? You know, it's cute, and you you grow up hearing him talk that way. But why is he doing that? It's because he is substituting W's for sounds that are actually rather similar. You might think, well, he's doing that for his L's and his R's and he's using a W and a W is a different letter that's way over at the other end of the alphabet. But it's actually, there's a certain sense in it because L and R, which we call L and R, but L and R, those are classified as our liquids. And you can feel what's liquid about them. You're not putting any of your mouth parts together, nor are you making a buzz. You're just kind of pretending. They're kind of fake sounds. And so, there are two other sounds that are kind of like that in different ways. They're called glides. And in English, that's w and y. Think about how with both w and y, there's a bit of you that kind of thinks that they're not quite real, you know, and not just because W and Y are down at the end, but they don't involve putting anything together or even making a good hefty buzz. It's just kind of whoop, yeah. Both of them are kind of like waves of the hand. So if you've got all or woo and yeah, you've got your liquids and your glides and the two of them kind of go together. They're kind of like, you know, Laurel and Hardy or something like that. They're all kind of similar. Well, if you're having trouble with woo and rrr, And those sounds often give acquirers trouble. They're some of the last to come, and maybe they never come if it's somebody who doesn't grow up with English. Well, then one substitute 
sounds kind of like it, and therefore you're going to be comprehensible. We're going to know that you're talking about a leg of lamb, even if you say wag of lamb is the whoop. So what Elmer is doing, or what Arthur Q. Bryan, the person who did him, it wasn't Mel Blanc, by the way, it was Arthur Q. Bryan. Mel Blanc didn't do, he was a genius, but he didn't do all those voices, and he didn't do even all the male voices. Arthur Q. Bryan was using a very plausible substitution. Now, of course, he was imitating children to an extent, but the reason children do it is because even if you're learning your native language, the olds and especially the ers can be tough. Often they come last. Not always, but often. So, for example, my youngest right now is doing the Ws, not for the Ls. She's got the Ls, but she's got the Ers. If I were going to imitate her, I would do a little bit of Elmer Fudd. She will probably get past that in two or three months. My older daughter did not happen to do that. She had other stuff. Even today, she says already for already. That's her last cute word. The cutest was bathing soup for bathing suit. That was a while ago. But these things can be random, but it's quite typical. Now, sometimes this is an answer to a question that I get from a lot of you. Sometimes, if you haven't got your r yet, the substitution that you make is that you rub your throat against what's below it and you do it back behind where your soft palate is. And so not a h, like if you're pronouncing the name of the composer, but instead of r, you might try something like h, h. If you're just listening, you don't know anything about writing and you can't quite do r, then you might go h, h. If you notice that is what we might think of as the French R. You might do what we call a uvular sound, where you're way back there, you know, in the realm of that little cute punching bag in the back of your mouth. And so that is probably why French has what we think of as that funny R. The story that it was King Louis who had it and everybody imitated him, too good to be true. Really, if you think about it, how would that many people hear him so much that they would imitate him so much that they would talk that way to their kids? Remember, for something to spread throughout a population, not only would a critical mass of people have to start talking that way, not just in imitating the king, but all the time, and then all the time, so much that you talk that way to your kids. It's quite impossible, especially in a time when there wasn't even broadcasting. But somehow people did start going her instead of r, and it probably started with a mistake that kids can plausibly make. And the funny thing about uvular r is that through a mechanism that nobody's sure of, that spread to lots of other European countries. You know, after about 10 minutes, it starts in France. Then you find it in Denmark and a lot of Germany and Austria and the Dutch are doing it. Think, if you learn those languages, you have to learn what we English speakers think of as that kind of screwed up R. And the funny thing is, it's not really what an R is. When you go huh like a rabbit instead of a rabbit, you're not doing a liquid anymore. That's actually a fricative. That's one of the hissy sounds. So you've got your s and your sh and your th. Those are the sounds that hiss. You're not stopping it, but you're not completely letting it through altogether. You're like a like a pimpled boy playing one of those gotcha games. That's what fricatives are kind of like. You can do that in your uvular region and you get And so r, that's what we think of as an R, is really a very different thing. But because of how change happens and how writing systems are conservative, we think of it as that kind of funny R. So Elmer gets you thinking about what a liquid is and what a glide is and these issues of substitution. That cute thing that he does actually has some roots in reality, as does something else 
in the Looney Tunes that I always think about when I hear the voice of little Tweety Bird. Tweety has what we could think of as, well, a speech peculiarity. And we hear it in particular with his catchphrase. And because we like to have music on the show, let's have Tweety in one of his earlier incarnations. Um, for those of you who care, this is A Gruesome Twosome from 1945. Let's listen to him singing his catchphrase. Very catchy song. It's going to be on you all day. You're going to have to take a shower to get it off of you. Be prepared. Here we go. I taught, I taught a putty tan, putty tan. So what is this I taught, I taught a putty cat? Why? I mean, it's funny, but why, why the tuh business? You know, why not a W or something like that? And what's going on here is that Mel Blanc is spontaneously slashed from listening to some children, children early on, taking the fricatives and replacing them with stops in a certain area. So, I saw your fricking on your alveolar ridge. You saw, stop the sound, and you taw. And so, you thought you're fricking with your, your teeth. You're putting your tongue between your teeth. Fricative. Okay. Well, suppose you just stop instead, and so t. So it's not you thought, but you taught like that. Well, pretty soon you taught, you taw a puddy tat. Now, k becoming a t, and so instead of having your k back on your soft palate, you have it up here on the alveolar ridge. That's taking it a little far, although not impossible. And there are people who, for one reason or another, have genuine and ongoing trouble producing the conventional sounds of English who are trained to use t instead of a k in that way. But what Tweedy is doing is stop substitution. He's exhibiting what is actually a phase along the way to speaking English when you learn it natively. And it's interesting. Languages differ in what array of sounds they have. And not only can languages have a lot more sounds than English, and a lot of you will be able to imagine that I would say that, but a language can have almost counterintuitively fewer sounds than English. English has, depending on how you count it, 43. A language can really have what you could call a couple of sprinkles of sounds, and that's a language like any other. So actually, one of my favorites of these, because it's extreme, is Rotokus. It's spoken on an island east of New Guinea. And in one of the dialects, and this is thought of as the main one for arbitrary reasons, but in one of the three or four dialects, there are no fricatives and <laughs> no nasals. And nasals is like, mm, mm, mm. They don't have those. So in a language where you don't have mm and mm, 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 they imitate outsiders trying to speak their language by just buzzing with a lot of mm, mm, that's how we sound to them because they don't have it. So it's a language where you can go sentences and sentences and you have just stops, you know, just put that is pretty much it. So if you say, for example, in this language, the old woman's eyes are shut. You don't even have to know what any of this means, but just listen to the stream of how it would go. Oti reto are abu kaba iaba uruu papira topati beira. Now, what the hell did that mean? It doesn't matter. It meant the old woman's eyes are shut, but no, no. So, for example, if I say it in English, the old woman's eyes are shut. Fricatives. That's what we think of as normal. We have nasals. Old woman's eyes are shut. 
Rotokos otireto ariabu kaba iaba uru pabirato batibera. And that's, that's just it. A language can be like that. And with Tweety, the stop substitution makes me think it's almost like he's trying to speak a language from east of New Guinea. Or many of the Polynesian languages aren't that extreme, but they have many fewer sounds than you'd expect. That includes the Hawaiian language, for example. So Tweety is doing something linguistically quite ordinary. It can't help but sound cute to a native English speaker, but stop substitution. He is using a kind of language that has many fewer sounds than we associate with language. And yet I have always found Tweety quite comprehensible. What else linguistically about the Looney Tunes? Well, there's something that's sensitive, but interesting, and that's the Porky Pig issue. Porky stutters. That's the definition of his character. And the truth is that that's really all that was interesting about Porky. They had trouble coming up with stories for Porky Pig because, and then here I stutter, (laughs) Porky Pig, because really all he was, was the stuttering. And, you know, we'll talk about this. In my historian guides, I feel like I should give you Porky's debut, but Frankly, it was kind of crude and it went on too long and it's almost painful in terms of the stutter and how realistic it is. It doesn't land 83 years later, but here's a bread and butter porky line. This is from full coverage of either 1951 or 1952. This is what porky did. I've simply got to fix that light in the base with the base of the cellar. It's probably a little loose wire or something. What are you doing? Just looking for an accident? What if that candle blew out and you fell down the stairs? So it's that thing where he starts to say something and can't get it out and then does a substitute where you kind of wonder how the substitute is any easier than what he wasn't saying. Now, it's interesting. Porky was making fun of what is actually a problem, not only for children, but sometimes for adults as well. And I assume nobody would create a character with that affliction today. Now, should Porky be boycotted for it? I must admit that I have never given it any serious thought, but he's so deeply ingrained in my ancient fund of memories that I, I shudder at the thought I feel possessive. There should definitely be no new character like that. But I can definitely say that Porky in his way, even if we think that's all folks is cute, was a symptom of a different culture of addressing linguistic disabilities. Because the truth is, Porky wasn't as unusual in his time as he comes off now. Now, Porky is the stuttering pig. That's how he stands out. Then there are a bunch of other cartoon characters. But if you want the stutter, it's all about Porky. Porky, really, it was almost a tired joke when he came along. He was like, um, an analogy would be the word children. And so we have a couple of handfuls of those irregular plurals like men and women. And then with child, you say children. And you wonder, well, what's that run? And we don't have time to think about it. And we move on. Used to be that a lot of English words pluralized with ren or something like it. If things had gone normally in English and we kept the amount of irregular plurals we used to have, which was quite imposing, then the plural of lamb would today be lambrin. The plural of egg would be egrin, not eggs. If you talked about plural of calves, it would be caffrin. And bread would be brethren, not breads. You would have different brethren. But as it happens, the only word that persisted with that particular irregular ending was children. Porky was like that. Because if you're indulging in the popular culture of the 20s and 30s and 40s, that 
Porky stutter. And exactly the way he did it was just a standard vaudeville gag. And so, for example, a very early talky musical, the Broadway melody. This is a very interesting antique that almost holds up huge hit in its day. And the manager, played by Jed Prouty, the big joke about the manager, his personality is that he does exactly what Porky did. And this is six years before Porky exists. This is the final gag. This is how they end what was a hit movie. Ha ha. Here we go. Oh, opening in Peoria. Four shows a day. Zanny said he'd make me a star in six months. Say a little lesson. It's better to star in Oshkosh than to stop on Broadway. That's a bum. Now you listen to me, stupid. I'll handle things. Yes, and I'll have your back on Broadway and in the palace. In less than six months. No fooling. Why, it's cream in the can, baby. Sure, it's... It's... It's in the can. Or as late as the 40s, this is the latest that I'm aware of this joke being used, although I certainly could have missed something. On the Amos and Andy radio show, you have white guys who are playing black guys, and they have a regular character in the 40s, Shorty the Barber. And Shorty the Barber does exactly what Porky Pig does, and it was considered very funny. When Shorty here mentions points, he's talking about rationing points during World War II. And so here's Shorty talking about what he's going to have for dinner. Hello, Shorty. I just thought I'd drop in to see you. Yeah, hi, hi, King Fish. I, 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 I'm glad you did. <laughs> you know, Shorty, I've been thinking. You was one of my best friends, and I ain't never had you over to my house for supper or to spend the night. Yeah, that, that's right. Yeah, and living alone and cooking for yourself like you does, I was thinking that maybe you ain't going to have much of a supper tonight. I, I was going to cook myself a wonderful meal tonight. Yeah, I, I'm going out and buy a big steak. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to buy a two-rib roast beef. Uh, I, I'm, I'm going to buy a mess of poultry. Uh, maybe I'll get, get, get me a big pot out. No points. <laughs> By the way, the actor doing Shorty was white, too, for the record. That was Lou Lubin. Very interesting, peculiar, disturbing, and frankly, entertaining show. There is a book about it. There should be about two more. That's just the beginning. There are other stuttering comedians. Roscoe Eats was another one. I'll spare you. But Porky was a symptom of a bygone insensitivity. At least they were certainly worse than we are today about this. He was less salient than he was now. He was the children of 1935. We have to take a step over to the MGM cartoon studio now. This is one of my favorite cartoons ever. It's one of my favorite things in the world. When I'm feeling blue, one thing that I really do do occasionally, what a strange way of putting it, is I will just flip open my iPad and watch this because it makes me happy. When I was an early teenager, yeah, this is when I'm about 13 or 14, one of my good friends, this is back in the late 70s, he said, they're showing these cartoons on this show where the director is this guy, Tex Avery, and these are funny. 
he didn't know that Tex Avery is an animation god. It didn't have to be taught. These cartoons just jumped out and he loved them. I had read about Avery some at that point because I was already a cartoon nerd. Unfortunately, Vince predictably had sex before I did. But I didn't know that Tex Avery cartoons were actually being shown. And I started watching and the one he singled out, and I'm glad he did, was Rockabye Bear. It's about this bear who hires a watchdog while he's hibernating and he lives in this nice little suburban house and he wants everything to be quiet but it turns out that he's a rather incongruously loud bear and so listen to one of his routines this for the record is Dawes Butler this is a man who could both do Huckleberry Hound and this here you go shut up quiet I said quiet what's the matter you deep or something My friends and I, now my wife and I, my daughters and I, all of us know the line. What are you, deaf or something? What's deaf? (laughs) Why does he say it that way? Think about it. Deaf. D-E-A-F. Now, there's a great vowel shift issue here because if something is spelled with that E-A, then by and large these days, even though it's an eh, it was actually pronounced ah, but eh is what it looks like and that's because it's in that part ah. Well, nowadays that's going to be E. So M-E-A-T, that's meat. Or consider words like lead or beak. That's how it's really supposed to go. Now, sometimes those ah words became a, very rarely. Really great, stake, and break. Nobody knows why those words stay the way they are. I mean, they're pretty common words, but then stake? Really? Do you talk about stake that much? Usually, you know, outside of Napoleon Dynamite, how central is it? Great break, but steak, but nobody really, nobody really knows. But usually it's going to be E, meat, lead, beak. Now, sometimes you had a becoming just eh. So bread, threat, breath, and so on. So that could happen. But usually if you're in the eh region, you go up to E. And so that's why usually it's going to be meat, lead, beak. Now, if you think about it, Death being pronounced deef, therefore, is normal. That's where it's supposed to go. Just like we don't talk about if there's something hanging from a tree, it's not a laugh and it's not a lef, it's a leaf, of course. Or you talk about a sheaf of things. So why not deef? That's what it's supposed to be. Predictably, that is how it was originally said. You can tell from rhymes. And it still is said that way, or at least has been regionally, which is often a euphemism for, you know, in the rural regions. And that may be part of why Dawes Butler pronounced it that way, because there's clearly supposed to be something a little bit rustic about this bear. Maybe some places kept it as deaf because of some kind of conservativity, like with children, maybe because deafness is talked about so often. But you see how that's kind of a stretch? I don't think deaf is supposed to be one of those words any more than steak is, really. I mean, you talk about steak and you talk about people being deaf a lot, but so much that something would stay frozen in time. To tell you the truth, sometimes there are just mysteries in linguistics. Sometimes it's just a matter of chance. The butterfly flapped its wing and a whole bunch of people refused to say deaf and just said deaf instead. And now deaf is the standard pronunciation. But what are you, deaf or something? In any case, let's not let's not leave <laughs> this bear because there's something else that he says that frankly in real life drives me up the wall listen to this quiet don't knock so loud there's one thing i hate and that's noise i say i hate noise well just don't stand there come on in 
Now you're wondering what's what's wrong with it? It's the just don't. Just don't stand there. Come on in. No, no. People often ask me because I'm a linguist, always saying that you should just let people say what they say, etc. But you know, yes. People ask me, do you have any pet peeves? Yes, I do. And one of them is that usage of just in what to me seems the wrong order. So it should be don't just stand there. Because if you substitute it simply, you'd say, don't simply stand there. Come on in. You wouldn't put it that way. But if you did, you wouldn't say simply don't stand there. I don't know what that means. Don't simply stand there. Come on in. But people reverse just in that way with don't quite often. Just don't stand there. Just don't come in here yelling and screaming. Do something about it. Just don't. It always feels backwards. It always feels to me like a neutron fell out of some nucleus somewhere, like my hair got messed up. Yes, that can happen. That is one of my pet peeves. And I just have to get over it. Frankly, if I don't like just don't, then I should be crusading against I could care less, which doesn't make any sense anyway. Or I kid you not, I was walking over here to do this recording and I read a message from somebody who doesn't like I only have eyes for you. They think that that doesn't work and it should be I have eyes only for you. Now, you know, you don't touch my old song. So with that, I just don't want to hear it. I understand why he's annoyed, but sorry. Well, in the same case, just don't stand there. I've got to put up with it, but it's in there just to show that language is never perfect. It's always got little dings in it. And it's just like, you know, your your car, your Nissan or something. In a way, it's not really yours until somebody's kind of fucked it up a little bit. Well, that is the way languages just happen to be. Listen to this individual. Who's this? Frankly, old man, I don't like it. It stinks. When I think what I might have been, dead, makes my blood boil. Me, a potential Easter bunny. Hm. Four walls. Oh, the irony of it all. What's this? Your dinner. My what? My dinner? Who do you think I am, a rabbit? I'll starve before I'll eat this stuff. That's what I'll do. I'll starve. You'll be sorry. Starve the little gray rabbit. Now, there was one giveaway in there, but some of you may not have known that that was the early Bugs Bunny. I'm actually playing a bit from what you can think of as the first real Bugs Bunny cartoon. Some people would say a wild hare. I get it. But I would call it Elmer's Pet Rabbit of 1941. And that's Bugs Bunny. But boy, it didn't sound like Bugs Bunny. You know, Mel Blanc's sort of creation myth. And, you know, God bless him for his creation myth. His idea was that as soon as Bugs Bunny was drawn, he gave Bugs Bunny basically the voice that we all remember him with. But no, it developed gradually in the early 40s. And what's, of course, different with this first Bugs Bunny's voice, which you think of as something that never would have been able to stand for long, since it's too deep. Sounds like he shaves. You know, you're waiting for it to go back up like this. That's the Bugs Bunny that we're used to. And you know why that works? Because it's cuter. You know, we're Americans. We like our stuff cuter. We like our stuff cuddlier and fuzzier. You know, take a look at a lot of animated cartoons, particularly from the early and mid 20th century in any country but ours, including the UK. All this cuddly happiness that's very American. Or with The Office, you know, Michael Scott is cutier 
than David Brent. David Brent is a tool. Michael Scott is just dopey. You could make dolls of Michael Scott. Nobody would want a doll of David Brent, or if it was one, it would be inflatable. That is an American kind of phenomenon. And you know, in language in general, higher tends to be cuter and more kind of. That's actually true that when you go up into the high sounds like e, and not even, of course, I'm making them on a high pitch, but e, is cuter and more flibberty jibbity cutie cutie than a, a. And I mean it. So, for example, there's a language called Juambisa spoken in Peru. This is a language spoken by a small indigenous group. No one knows it but them, basically. A linguistic anthropologist, famous one, Brent Berlin, actually examined their language and their culture, and he did an interesting experiment. There are creatures with names where the Huambisa live, and one creature was called a Chinchuiket, and another creature was called a Mautz. Now, Brent Berlin asked American students, if you had to decide which one of those things was a bird, like... In which one was a fish, as in, well, is it the chinchuiket or the mouts? Is the chinchuiket a bird or a fish? Is the mouts a bird or a fish? And, you know, it's probably in your brains, too. You know that the chinchuiket is a bird and the mouts is a fish. And the reason the chinchuiket is a bird largely is the chinchuiket. It's the e. It's got an e in there as opposed to the mouths, where you know that that's something down low and it's kind of wet and you kind of don't want to touch it. And he did it with other pairs of things. And so an iachi and an apup. Both of those words are very cute. Iachi sounds like something that you'd eat, and apup sounds like something that your puppy would do, and you wouldn't mind because it's a puppy. Iachi, apup. But almost all the time, people knew that the iachi flies around and goes squeaky squeak. And apoop is something that you catch out of the water and beat on the head. It's really very simple. It's kind of like take a bead and take a bod. We know what beads and bods are, but even if we didn't, you know the bead is smaller than the bod because bead is up high and tight. It's in the top. It's a nice high front sound. And then bod. Well, you're down on the bottom. You're way in the back. Beads are bigger than bods. A cleep would be birdier than a droke. You know, which is bigger, a cleep or a droke? You know the cleep is not bigger, even though there's no such thing. Drokes are bigger than cleeps. That's the same thing as Bugs Bunny, because there had to be a certain cute appeal. And I doubt if anybody thought of this, but for him to be charming, for him to really break out as a rabbit and with that particular personality, he needed to not have that voice that sounded like he was possibly going to go out and rob a bank. It needed to be higher. It needed to be sweeter. And it became so. For our final Looney Tune linguistic lesson, we're going to actually go to another studio again. We're going to slip over to Paramount. These are what now are known as the Harvey tunes. This is Casper and Herman and Catnip. And these cartoons had a kind of an urban northeastern tilt. And it's because they traced back to the Betty Boop days. You know, Betty Boop is identifiably Jewish. She's also one of the most lubricious cartoon characters to ever appear until roughly Fritz the Cat. And you've got the grimy early Popeyes who are the only cartoon characters, well, until Fritz the Cat, where you can actually imagine all of them, you know, doing number twos. You know, this is like a real gritty kind of world. And in that world, with these guys, you know, some of whom clearly were weed smokers, especially in the 30s, 
even by the 50s, I don't think it's a surprise, they were kind of doing the black thing later than any of the other studios. I think it was part of that genealogy. And so they had Buzzy the Crow. And Buzzy the Crow is clearly supposed to be a black American crow. He's kind of a ripoff from the crows in Dumbo, which had not been long ago. And Buzzy, for the record, I'm cartoon nerdery. This is Jackson Beck, the guy who also did Bluto, versatility. And listen to Buzzy's grammar in a cartoon called No Ifs, Ands, or Buts. Buts spell B-U-T-T. They weren't that lubricious. It's about smoking. Listen. Uh-uh. That cat am a tobacco-smoking fiend. That's all I have to know. So what's this am, you know, this am for ids? Have you ever heard a black person say that? No, no black person says you am a cigarette smoking fiend. No, no am at all. And that am sounds so ridiculous that we assume that that's just some minstrel thing. That's just something that white people made up. The idea being that black people can't conjugate the verb to be. And, you know, minstrel speech was quite exaggerated. There are no black people who talked like the people who used to be prancing around in blackface makeup way, way back. But that am, as weird as it sounds, actually probably was something that perfectly intelligent black people used because black English has been around a while. And so like the English that I'm always talking about changing, black English has changed too. And not just in the slang. And so, for example, Buzzy says, you know, that cat am a tobacco smoking fiend. And you're thinking, am? What the hell is that? But, you know, there are transcriptions of people who were ex-slaves in the 1930s. These are people who are very old at this point. And these are people who, of course, are speaking black English, at least at times during these interviews. And, you know, there are many of them who use am in exactly that way. And the people transcribing were taking this seriously and trying to be as exact as they could. They weren't trying to create comedy. And these were people who were trained to listen to actual language. And you get things like there's a guy, he's 83. His name is William Moore. And he's telling a story about when he was a slave. And he says, pretty soon they say it am safe for us to come in the cabin to eat at night. And they watch for Mars Tom, Master Tom, Mars Tom. One day Mars Tom's wife am in the yard and she calls me and says she got something for me. Am. It's all there. It's highly unlikely that these transcribers in the 1930s, these graduate students, were putting minstrelisms into these very serious transcriptions. And you see the am in other places. So a high Harlem Renaissance novel, Claude McKay's Home to Harlem, has black people who had migrated from the Deep South, who are now making their way in the big city of New York. He has them speaking what is supposed to be honest black language. And, you know, those ams are running throughout. This is a black man writing with an anthropological kind of respect. And there are all sorts of things such as him talking about the women in Harlem as opposed to what he was used to in the Deep South. And he'll say, these here am different chippies, I tell you. What's the am? And remember, he's not making fun. It's not supposed to be humorous. He's trying to indicate exactly how these men would have spoken. And yet there are these 
ands. And it's too often for it to be an accident, which leads you to think that there really was a such thing. And you can dig up some of the most obscure things that give you further indication that what Buzzy was saying had some basis in reality, which I certainly never would have thought if I hadn't been aware of these earlier sources. 1884, a certain James Harrison, white, is doing a grammatical description of what we now call black English. And he's talking about all these constructions that people still use today. And so it's a serious description of the black English dialect. And at one point in the middle, he just says, am sometimes runs throughout all persons of the present tense. Then he moves on. Now, once again, maybe he was basing that on what he had heard on the minstrel show stage, but he may have been basing it on what actual people, probably ex-slaves, were saying. The evidence piles so high that as weird and frankly stupid and derisory as it sounds when Buzzy the Crow says in the 1950s in the Eisenhower era, that cat am a tobacco smoking fiend. That was probably based on what was actual usage among black people at a certain time. Black English changes just like all other English. I know there really hasn't been much room on this one for songs. And so many of you, have urged me not to stop playing random old songs based on my little joke last time. I want to assure you by giving you a song here. This one made no noise at all. And it's actually from that Looney Tune phase that I have told you was lousy. We're talking about before about 1938. Most of them are virtually unwatchable unless you don't have much to do or are strange. We're talking about 1935 to be specific. This is that cartoon where Porky Pig makes his debut. I'm still not going to play you his part. This is the only sequence in the cartoon called I Haven't Got a Hat that is kind of for the ages, or at least my ages. It's the song that they name the cartoon after. And here it is performed by two toddler St. Bernards. Here it goes. I kiss my hat to you. I do just that. Take it right off for you, but I haven't got a hat. I'm just a college boy, even at that. I tip my hat to you, but I haven't got a hat. I'm really not a sap, it's plain to see. But if I wore a cap, they'd never let me back in the university. I think it's well I do, I'm standing pat. I tip my hat to you, but I haven't got a hat. See, isn't that kind of cute? Those characters were named Ham and X. Get it? That's a pun. And they never really caught on. But the one with the deep voice, actually, that's Billy Bletcher. He later did um, The Big Bad Wolf and various voices that sound like that. This is one of his early cartoon assignments. But actually, if you wonder why I'm playing that, if that performance didn't get you, listen to the song being played on the soundtrack after the St. Bernards leave the stage and listen to how good it is when it's jazzed. Listen here. That's just good 30s pop right there. We have to have a play out and it's not going to be that silly old song, but it is going to be a song that hits me in the same place 
and it plays throughout another early Porky Pig cartoon, the one called Plain Dippy from 1936. And it's on the soundtrack. Thank you, Dad, for telling me what this song was. And this is Al Jolson singing that song on his radio show. This is from a film I don't recommend called Shipmates Forever of 1935. And I just find this song delightfully catchy. It's part of the soundtrack of my life. I know that rules one made for fools. That's one thing I have learned. But I'm going in for discipline wherever you're concerned. If you say kiss me, that's what I'll do. Because I just love to take orders from you. You can reach us at Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. That's Lexicon Valley at Slate.com. To listen to past shows and subscribe, or just to reach out, go to Slate.com slash Lexicon Valley. This show was edited, as always, by Mike Wolo. Someone wrote me with what that parrot joke was, and I'll share next time. It was a good one. And I'm John McGuire. that rules one made for fools. That's one thing I have learned. But I'm going in for discipline wherever you're concerned. If you say kiss me, that's what I'll do. Because I just love to take orders from you